Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Before we get into our show, we'd like to ask you to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. And today we're speaking with journalist and filmmaker Sinead O'Shea about her new doc, Pray for Our Sinners. It was insidious. You see, it started at five, remember? Right through your national school into your secondary school. You were cemented. Indoctrination is the only word I can think of. Didn't question anything. Whatever you were told to believe, that's what you believed. In the practice then, you started coming up with the problems. These women were permanently pregnant. For a time, Ireland was considered Europe's last theocracy. The Catholic Church was dominant over pretty much all aspects of public life, from the schools to welfare agencies to the government. Sinead's film is about the abuse and neglect that took place by the church, specifically when it came to women and girls. Unwed mothers could be sent to mother and baby homes separated from their children. Corporal punishment was rampant in schools. And an atmosphere of fear governed the way people conducted themselves in their day-to-day lives. The economy was in a state of collapse. The government was deeply corrupt. Church and state were as closely bound as ever. Corporal punishment was normal for me. Poverty was widespread, contraception illegal. One boy in my class had 14 brothers and sisters. You were considered to be hysterical if you talked about your feelings. But a small number of people found ways to resist, and the film shows us how they push back against the church. Really powerful documentary. And, um, you know, as someone who's really interested in Irish history, this is a part of Irish history I didn't really uh, know much about. I, you know, I, I studied the Troubles in university and I actually visited Ireland a few years ago. Uh, and I was kind of taken back by this. And it, it actually kind of reminded me of our own uh, history with uh, indigenous people, indigenous children being sent to residential schools. Uh, I feel like there was some parallels there. And that's, that's why I wanted to do the doc, because I wanted to kind of uh, learn about the Irish history and sort of how maybe, uh, you know, how it was, how, how they treated uh, the vulnerable, mm-hmm. I guess, is uh, the way I would put it. Yeah. Um, I don't know very much about Ireland, so I, I find it interesting that it's a country that you've studied. And I found it really interesting that um, and important that Sinead was the person to tell that story because she's from the community. Mm-hmm. And I feel as if the tone of the documentary would have changed if an outsider told it. Because there's a part of the documentary where I'm expecting for it to go one way. Mm-hmm. I've already made up my mind <laughs> yeah. about the characters and who's good and who's evil. And when it didn't go my way, I had to kind of sit back and think, huh, you know, history, I guess, is told from the viewpoint of the people who won in those kind of situations. Um, another parallel with Canada, Canada actually had, they had these homes as well for unwed mothers and children where they would take children away from these mothers. Mm-hmm. And that's something I never learned in Canada, in Canadian history, so. No, there's a lot of history we just don't get taught. And actually, and, and you're right about, you know, the film showing you things and you expect uh, certain people to behave a certain way, but it, it's completely different. Um, you know, people are complicated, obviously. But one thing I, I also just want to mention about 
this film is, you know, the idea that Ireland uh, was a kind of a theocracy for most of the 20th century was just something I never thought about because it's European and, you, you know, you're supposed to, you, I guess we grew up with this idea that European is this enlightened, you know, uh, place and obviously it's not completely. Yeah, <laughs> it's the still, power of the church, And right? the church just had this very dominant role in society that I just, you know, didn't know that much about. And I was really appreciative of Sinead to come on the show and talk to us about it. Mm-hmm. And, well, let's go to that conversation. This is me and Nam talking with Sinead O'Shea. Well, Sinead O'Shea, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, I guess my first question is, why did you want to make this documentary? Well, um, it's probably a slightly convoluted answer. It kind of came to me, ultimately. Um, I'm from a place in the middle of Ireland called Navin, and I just made my first feature documentary, which was called A Mother Brings Her Son to Be Shot. And I I was just catching up with an old school friend and she said, you know, there's a really good story here. Did you hear about the time some local doctors stood up to the church about corporal punishment? And I thought, I don't know, I was just initially quite skeptical about it when I think back, but it did turn out to be a good story, but it also turned out to be only a small part of the story. So it was kind of from that starting point that I decided to make the film. And Sinead, as you go through the film, we find out um, more about Navin. We also find out about Ireland. But what was it like for you to grow up in Navin? Yeah, it's funny. I think, you know, back then, (laughs) back so long ago in the 1980s and 1990s, you know, it did it did feel quite isolated. You know, I. I went, I left Nava when I was 17 and I started university in Dublin. And even though Dublin and Navan were only maybe an hour apart in, t- in terms of travel time, it, it did actually feel years apart. It did feel like we were growing up in a, in a different era to some of the rest of the country. So, you know, it was quite conservative. And as I say in the film, you know, like there were children in my class who had 14 brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. Um, you know, corporate punishment was very common. The whole community did center around mass. Um, and you know, the priest did come and visit the house every week and you did scramble to make everything nice for him and you gave him money and biscuits. And I mean, not all of this was sinister, I have to say. Like, you know, there are some aspects of this which I think are really positive. Um, but I guess ultimately one of the main conclusions of the film is that the church had just too much power and too much political power, too much power where the state should have had power. And so that gave them license to do things which they definitely shouldn't have done. I'm curious to learn more about that power because I was actually in Ireland a few years ago. Uh, I absolutely loved it. I've, I've always been kind of fascinated with the country and its history, but this was honestly a relationship that I didn't really know much about, this relationship that the country had with the Catholic Church. So could you just tell us a little bit about how it got so entwined? Yeah, I think it's funny. I think a lot of people don't understand the origins of that relationship. So I think most Irish people would say, and I certainly I say, that that relationship really began during during the time when England, I suppose, had colonized Ireland. And so the Catholic Church became more powerful then because it became a symbol of Irishness and it defended Irish people and it helped 
the Irish people rebel, rebel against English rule. It helped with education. It, it taught people Irish. So it became very associated with Irishness. And then when the Irish state eventually well, kind of declared independence and then was eventually won, you know, in the 1920s and the constitution was formulated, the Irish church was in a very strong position to assert itself within the constitution. It also had the funds and finances to take over certain certain parts that the government wasn't able to do itself. So it took it took huge control of education and it took huge control of health. So it still retains that power to a large extent today. And, you know, as I say in the film, they still control 91 percent of the primary schools. I think it's something like 70 something percent of the secondary schools and they still control a lot of the hospitals. In fact, recently there's been huge controversy here because the National Maternity Hospital is still going to be part owned by a religious order of nuns. So that's the kind of fundamentals of the relationship that it, it actually, you know, it was very intertwined with the Irish state and it had come about through a kind of anti-Englishness, if that makes sense. Um, and not just with the state, it felt, um, you mentioned how the priests were part of the community. In the film, we learned that they were actually privy to personal information in families. Um, they were kind of like uh, another family member, so to speak. Your film also looks at uh, mother and baby homes that unwed mothers were sent to, and the priests were involved in these decisions. So why were these mother and baby homes set up? Well, I mean, it's 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 a big question because <laughs> in a way you could answer quite simply and say why there's no good reason. But ostensibly, the reason was to provide unmarried mothers with a place to have their children, because to have a child as an unmarried mother was such a source of shame within Irish society that they had to you know, be hidden away somewhere. But actually, there was a lot of other motivation, too. So you know, many of these babies were actually sold to American couples who wanted to adopt them. The religious orders organized those transactions. Some of the babies were used in vaccine trials. And then in very isolated cases, some of the babies were allowed to come home with their mothers if the mother's family was going to be accepting of them. So that was their main purpose was to provide a kind of refuge, quote unquote, for the unmarried mother. But I mean, I think more broadly, the real reason was to act as a discouragement, I suppose, to the rest of the population to to warn women what would happen if they had unmarried sex. And I guess slightly for men too, but I mean, men didn't really face the same consequences. Obviously, this stuff happens in a lot of different places, but I thought it was so interesting how the priests were involved in making that, those really personal decisions, but there wasn't really like, the women didn't get pregnant on their own. And I think Mary articulates it really well in the film as a scene towards the end of the film when the mother and baby home come, report comes out. And, you know, this was this landmark report <laughs> in Ireland and it turned out to be no such thing you know they had they had obscured a lot of the women's testimonies and just not included them most of the time and Mary is just so frustrated and she says but what about the men why weren't there homes for men and you, there's no good answer you know it was just it was always the woman's fault and you know that I think that's been really central to Irish life that things are always the women's fault it's it's been a deeply patriarchal society, you know, and change 
is happening and you know clearly the abortion legislation was passed in the last few years and same-sex unions are now possible but this change has been so overdue here it's been deeply patriarchal as i say in the film women couldn't even work here after they were married you know they had to retire or <laughs> retire from public service jobs and the mary you're mentioning uh is i think mary randalls and she's uh in the film and we're going to talk about her in a, a little bit I, I do want to ask you though about another woman you interview her name's betty and I, I i think she was also sent to one of these homes could you just talk about her experience and also if you could just talk about how you were able to get her to describe what she went through because obviously she's she's drawing upon some very traumatic uh history in her life and i'm just wondering what what the process was for getting her to open up to you yeah, well, Betty and Mary were very close. And so Mary and I had worked together, I suppose, to um, I suppose to get the film off the ground. Um, and so Mary introduced me to Betty. And so I think for Betty, that was maybe enough that, you know, Mary trusted me. And so we met one day in Mary's house and she spoke about her experiences in this mother and baby home. So she was sent to a home called the Shan Ross Mother and Baby Home in Tipperary when she was pregnant. And, you know, she was treated very badly, no worse than anyone else, as she says. Um, but, you know, she was made to scrub floors while, while heavily pregnant at four o'clock in the morning. She wasn't allowed to communicate with the other women. They were all given false names in these institutions so that they wouldn't form any kind of bonds or intimacies. Um, so that was a very sad story. And she was she found it very difficult to tell me that story, but it felt it felt kind of respectful to that story to show how difficult it was for her to express it. Um, but I had the feeling after that first day that there was kind of maybe more that she might want to say. So I was able to meet her a few months later for a second time um, again in Mary's house. And I had felt that she wasn't maybe that maybe she had more to say about the actual birth itself. And so she went on to tell me that in that meeting. And that was, you know, again, in the film, you see her description of it and you know, it's not the most fulsome or horrifying description of something, but actually, again, it's the it's the way she talks around it. I think that's really impactful that, you know, you, you can see how traumatized she is by the fact that she just can't bring herself to describe most of it. Well, you mentioned Mary a few times, so let's let's just talk about her a little bit and, and her husband, Patty. You know, they were they were a couple that uh, Patty Randall's. They were a couple that kind of resisted the authority of the church. And I was just wondering how they were able to help young women like Betty. Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, there weren't very many people like the Randalls in Ireland at the time. And I suppose I feel a frustration now when I look back and I just go, what was wrong with everyone else? You know, why weren't they stepping up to help people in the way that they did? I guess they were an unusual case in that they had each other for support. They were very in love. Um, they were too general practitioners living in a country town. They didn't have, they didn't have connections to the place that went back generations. Most people in Navan did go back generations with each other. And, you know, in small places, the more, the more embedded you are, the more difficult it is to make changes or assert yourself, I think, in ways. So they had that kind of freedom. 
they also had the income, I guess, that a doctor's salary can provide you with. So they they had a kind of agency, um, but they used it very well, I think. And so I think their reputation grew as people who could help women who were in trouble, quote unquote. Um, they also helped out then with the corporate punishment issue when that began to escalate in Avon. They helped out with reproductive medicine. They were able to provide contraception to people. You know, they did it. They did a huge amount and they received a lot of criticism for it. And, you know, they're like half their clinic left them. They received threats constantly. They were they had to send their children to school out of town. So they they paid a price in some ways. But I think they would feel very happy with actually what the decisions that they made. Uh, the Randalls did pay a price because in the film you mentioned how important community was in Navin and being isolated from that community um, was felt in many different ways. At the beginning of the film, you talk about how this documentary is about power and resistance. You interview a woman named Ethna who refused to go to a mother and baby home. What were the consequences for people who didn't go along with what the church wanted? I think it it was exactly that. It was isolation. And so isolation, you know, it might not sound like much initially, but, you know, you do as time goes on, if you're isolated in a small place, it can be very tricky for you. You know, you it means it can be hard to get a job, for example, or it can, you know, people might not want to give you custom. They you know, it's not just about social isolation. There's a there's a kind of an economic price as well for being isolated, being apart from a crowd. You know, in a city, if you fall out with someone, there's other people for you to socialize with. There's other people for you to find work with. But in a small place, your the stakes are a lot higher. I think if you make a decision that's going to result in your isolation. In Edna's case, I mean, I think. I think she's just the most brilliant character because she she just wasn't scared and, and she, you know, people weren't able to intimidate her. Sometimes the threat of isolation is more meaningful than the isolation itself. And so she didn't succumb to that threat. And so she just said, I'm not going to that mother baby home. I don't care what people say about me behind my back. I don't care if people think I'm a shameful creature. She She just didn't feel ashamed. She really wanted to have that child. But as we see in the film... Yeah, that that wasn't enough actually like the church was quite determined that she wouldn't get to keep that baby another aspect of your film that i want to ask you about is corporal punishment we talked about it a little at the top but this was just rampant in ireland and and one of the people who was uh the recipient of this was uh, a gentleman named norman who you interview um could you just talk a bit about his experience yeah, I mean, Norman's experience was horrifying when you think of what age he was. So he was nine years old and he was being beaten quite severely in school, as were most of the other children. Uh, he had a broken arm. And so his mother had gone to uh, her local doctor, who was Paddy Randalls, to ask if Paddy could write a note so that Norman could be beaten on his good arm, not his broken arm. And so Paddy had said... I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to write you that note. And so Paddy, naively, I guess, thought he would speak to the headmaster about this and tell the headmaster what's going on in school. 
And instead, the headmaster said, no, no, I, I'll show you the sticks that I used to beat the children with. So, you know, it was a real case of just Norman was completely outnumbered. He had, you know, he had Paddy as an ally, but, you know, there was nobody else in the school who, who was thinking in those terms. Um, so as you see in the film, the issue really escalated and ultimately Norman paid a huge price for, I suppose, his mother making that decision to go to see Dr. Paddy Randalls. Well, what happened? Because he was so young. I mean, I have a nine-year-old and just watching the documentary and seeing what those children went through. And at one point in the documentary, um, there's this, uh, I guess, assertion that only Americans <laughs> complain, but um, in Ireland, you don't complain. What was Norman's life like after he spoke out? I think it was terrible. You know, he ended up going to work in a factory at the age of nine years old. And you know, he was the youngest there by a very long way. He was still ostracized within the town. You know, he was learning how to make furniture. He couldn't really do it. He didn't know how to work in a factory. You, you know, it doesn't, there isn't the scope to investigate it further within the film. But, you know, he, he ended up leaving that factory. He ended up having loads of little odd jobs. Eventually he leaves the country when he was 14. You know, he really, he had a really tough time of things. And there was just so little sympathy for him because he was seen to be this nine-year-old troublemaker. And his mother also was this woman who had dared speak out against the church. And again, part of their problem was that they were poor, they were working class. So they were seen to be it just... Who do they think they were, I think, was the main attitude towards them to be complaining. You know, they just people thought they had a real nerve to complain like that. And as you say, as I say in the film, you know, it's only Americans who were so kind of egomaniacal or, you know, it was considered to be very egotistical to speak out about things. And you should just put up. And so Norman and his mother had refused to do that. So I think everyone felt like they kind of got what they deserved. There's one other character in the film uh, who's talked about, and he's um, kind of a complicated figure. This is Father Andrew Farrell. Could you just talk a little bit about what his reputation was in the community? I mean, mostly he had a very good reputation. People really loved him. And I thought he was an interesting character because for me, he really represents what the demise of the Catholic Church in Ireland has been about because you know, there's been a lot of publicity here and globally about sex abuse cases. And, you know, one might think engaging with that publicity that, you know, the clergy has been all about paedophilia. And actually, the clergy's dysfunction has been much more about men like Father Farrell, who are really charismatic, really clever and accomplished men who exploit that power, or who don't even realize they're exploiting that power some of the time. So, I, for me, he's a very interesting and kind of important figure to include in the film. So he had started in Navan actually around the same time as the Randalls. And he he was very conflicted, I think. I think he wanted to reform the church, but he couldn't. And he also hated any kind of threat to his own authority. So he saw the corporal punishment saga as a threat to his authority and that of the churches. Um, as you see in the film, he was also involved in the mother and baby home. 
struggles as well. So he's a very complicated figure, but he's not someone I think we can condemn entirely. And, you know, he's, as I said, he's very popular in Navin still. And at first I thought everyone who was defending him, I thought they were just being a bit naive. But actually, I think when we see him before and finally in the film, you get a sense of how impressive he actually was. Uh, in Canada, we're dealing with our own reckoning when it comes to Indigenous children being who were sent to residential schools and the uncovering of graves of those children who died while in those schools. Um, what is Ireland doing to come to terms with what happened to the children who died in the mother and baby homes? Well, it's a subject of a lot of controversy here because I think nearly anyone who has any familiarity with the subject would agree that Ireland isn't doing enough to help those survivors or the or do anything for the people and children who died. Nearly 9,000 children died over the years of the mother and baby homes and tens of thousands of people were affected by this too. You know, there's tens of thousands of children who were illegally adopted and 56,000 women passed through those homes also. So the government has set up a redress scheme, but it's quite a flawed scheme. It's been designed, I think, ultimately to save the government money in any kind of compensation claims. They've designed it so that the survivors are categorised by the amount of time they spent in the home. So Betty, for example, she spent her late pregnancy and a short time after she gave birth in the home. So she's categorised as someone who's been the least affected by, um, by the mother and baby homes which is obviously crazy because if you give birth in that kind of setting and if you spend your late pregnancy there, that's going to be very traumatic. But it's been, as I say, it's just predicated on the amount of time that she spent there. So she's eligible for the least amount of compensation. She's eligible at the moment for 5,000 euros worth of compensation, which, you know, if you broke your toe in an industrial accident, you'd be entitled to more compensation under the current compensation schemes here. So it's a subject of a lot of controversy and I don't think anyone feels any kind of satisfaction um, about it. And it's certainly not a very cathartic thing. I I think a much bigger reckoning is due. I don't know what exactly is happening in Canada to do with these issues, but, you know, maybe it's some Maybe we need to look to Canada. I'm not sure. It, it seems quite embryonic in Canada also, is it? I think it provoked a lot of soul searching, I think, amongst Canadians. That's just my own opinion. Um, there's also been somewhat of, I guess, like pushback from certain elements who are trying to maybe downplay it. But it's 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 definitely not an issue that's gone away. Um, and I think, you know, we've had our own Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There's a reconciliation is something that is talked about at uh, the federal government level and also provincially. And, 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 you know, it's just kind of a, it's in the air a lot now uh, talking about reconciliation with indigenous peoples. But um, yeah, I guess maybe there's a lot we could learn from each other if you think about it. Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think we've anything to teach anyone, to be honest. <laughs> I really don't. I think, you know, there should be at the very least some kind of truth and reconciliation forum here. And there isn't, you know, as I said, that report that was released in 2021, it just didn't include individual mother's testimonies. You know, how insulting to people like not only are you not going to give them money, you're not even going to allow them speak to their experiences. You know, it's it's very degrading. And I just think people are very upset about it. But 
I, again, you know, as you just mentioned, as there is in Canada, there's, there is a little diversity of opinion here. I think it's not so much diversity of opinion here as just indifference here in some cases. Um, I should also mention that uh, Canada did also have mother and baby homes, and that's a conversation that's coming to light as uh uh, the conversation as we see the changes down south in the United States around abortion. Yeah. It seems like Ireland's on a very progressive trajectory, at least from some of the things I've noticed. Um, and I think we've talked about it already, you know, contraception, divorce, same-sex marriage, abortion, all things that were banned are now legal. And the church, even though it does seem to have uh, still a lot of sway, I wonder if if you think that it's it's loosening its grip on Ireland. Or maybe it's losing <laughs> yeah. Um I think it's it's losing its grip currently. I think certainly my generation generations younger than I have very little faith these days and very little time for any of the antics really that the church comes out with. But I think the Catholic Church is you know it's it's very good on strategy. It thinks very long term. You know, I I I've mentioned that they, you know, they still maintain control of the National Maternity Hospital. They're going to have a 300 year lease like that suits the Catholic Church very well. They think in centuries. They think very, very long term about things. So I wouldn't write the Catholic Church off yet by any means in Ireland. And in terms of Irish people's progressiveness, you know, I think we had a lot of catching up to do just to kind of reach the state of normal, basically. Um there are lots of ways in which it's quite difficult, I think, to be vulnerable. I, for me, like many people, I would measure a society's progressiveness by how it treats the vulnerable. And so I think still it's quite difficult if you are vulnerable, if you're unaligned in Ireland, it's still quite difficult for you to progress. Um, in terms of what's happening in the US, it does feel like, you know, the US, which is the place that Irish people especially always looked towards, and they do seem to be moving in quite different directions. Um, and it is interesting that, you know, the makeup of those Supreme Court judges, you know, there's a lot of Catholicism in there. You know, So, yeah, I just wouldn't underestimate the Catholic Church. It's a very, very effective institution. Um, I want to go back to where we started, and that's talking about community and uh, isolation. In the documentary, you gave the impression that you were a little worried about how the documentary would be received in Navin. Um, how has it been received? Well, nobody has seen it there yet, and I am a little bit worried. Why are you worried? Well, I, I also wonder if talking about being worried, it makes it more likely that I should be worried. But um, <laughs> I suppose... Um, I suppose that, I don't know, people are always quite sensitive about how they're being portrayed. And, um, you know, Father Farrell, he was truly loved within Navin. Um, and I wouldn't want it to seem like um, I'm portraying a place that I left anyway when I was 17. Yeah, I don't want it to, to seem like I'm portraying it as... Um, you know, very regressive or because actually the irony is, you know, I've traveled and lived in lots of places since then. And actually, I think it's a bit of an illusion that big cities are more sophisticated. And yeah, I kind of hate the pretensions of sort of, I don't know, upper middle class liberal people. I don't want to digress too much, but there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot 
to value in places like Navin. Um, and I just hope it wouldn't come across as otherwise. So that's, I guess, one anxiety. And then it's just like small things, you know, the school where all those things happened to Norman. You know, my sister is a teacher in that school, you know, so it's it's all very close to home. I'm just conscious of the potential for offence or sensitivity. But maybe I should stop talking about it. Um, <laughs> well, I'll just say I'll just say that Colin and I were both nodding when you said about the pretensions between like if you live in a big city, it's supposed to be something else compared to a smaller city. So we kind of are on the same page. With yeah, that. I think. Well, I grew up in a big city, so I don't know <laughs> what it's like in a smaller town. But Sinead, this has been a wonderful conversation and we really appreciate you uh, teaching us so much about uh, Ireland's history and, and this uh, sad chapter, I guess, and it's. It's history, but uh, it gave us a lot to think about. So thank you. Okay, thank you so much. That was very joyful. (laughs) And that's the podcast. Pray for Our Sinners was a tip this year and is currently seeking distribution in North America and the UK. Look for it on the festival circuit. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners to find the show. This episode was produced by yours truly and Matthew O'Mara and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Special thanks to our production support coordinators, Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. Matt wears many hats. He does. <laughs> our, our manager for podcasts is Sharayea Tajvidi, and our executive producer for digital is Lori Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs>